This is a 3CR podcast. And this is Published or Not. Have you ever heard of the word echolalia? And when you know that it means a repetitive word, it makes sense. Echolalia. It's also the title of Brioni's Doyle's book. There's a sense of echolalia in the Cormac family. There are three generations of males. So where's the echolalia here? Yeah, it's true that part of the thing that I wanted to explore with this idea of repetitions was the way that we tend to repeat ourselves in legacy. And this is really literal in this Cormac family where the patronym is passed down three generations that we know of. But, I, you know, in the Cormac family, the idea of being a Robert Cormac is, uh, you know, a big deal. It's the patriarch of the family. But in that repetition, there's also a repetition of that paternal legacy and of this real specific idea of um, Australian masculinity. There's a very strong matriarch too, Pat. What does she want most from her family? Pat's such an interesting character to spend time with for me as a writer. I feel like I've known a lot of cats in my life. They're unbelievably tough, strong-minded, would do anything for their families, but they also have a key role to play in perpetuating patriarchal ideas of power. What Pat wants from her family is that they succeed and that their legacy goes on into the future, but she's not really concerned about the kinds of violence and obliterations that that legacy already entails. And when I say that, I'm I'm talking about Uh, colonial violence and also the violence of class privilege and she doesn't even really consider that her family have any kind of negative impact on the community that they're in she sees them as bastions of the community there's emma she sees the comic family as confident outspoken and perhaps entitled and that's not how she sees herself and i'll get brioni to read from page five please emma was not born to it You could see that at a glance, too awkward in her skin, shrinking away from the sunlight rather than striding into it. And it was impossible to ignore her smallness. Every component of her was small, little features, twiggy limbs, wispy pale hair that she scraped back from her face or let hang in a thin veil. Yeah, Emma and Robert have got three children. Their oldest son didn't get the family name. Why not? He didn't get the family name because there was a suspicion that he was not perfect. That's always been on the lips of the family the entire time. And Emma, in turn, kind of reflects this suspicion back with this idea that they're they're blocking her first son out of the family and that she needs to protect him. Emma is perhaps suffering from postnatal depression. She went into motherhood. She's a very young mother when she has her first child. And she goes in with an idea less about children than about the social role of motherhood and what that will give her. She's always been kind of directionless, which is a totally understandable thing to be for a 22-year-old woman. She's not specifically scholastic. She's not driven like her little sister who wants to be an actress and is very firm on all the things she wants from her life. She's just not really sure yet. Within the Cormac family, it's not okay not to be okay. Well, she sees her oldest daughter, Clementine, growing up very self-sufficient like the grandmother, Pat. It's Arthur. Now, Arthur, the oldest son, has delayed speech. He's sensitive to light and sound. So she feels that she has to protect him from life. But she wonders, well, who's protecting her? And then there's baby Robbie. 
who's constantly wanting to be breastfed. This is a quote. Robbie's screaming was wholly different from Clem's shrill keening or Arthur's cries. This baby wanted her to feel the extent of his need, the affront of her failure. He was an insulted, important person and she a slack and useless waitress. Well, I think at that point, she's really projecting what she feels from her family of adults onto her baby, particularly because with this third baby, she feels as though um, they see her as making up for, for having brought a less than perfect child into their family. And so she's really starting to project this, this kind of sense of being used this sense of being in service of the family only and not possessing her own identity onto her baby son who is also the coddled perfect future child of the family so in some sense she's kind of making up for what she sees as an inequity in the treatment between her two young children. What about uh, husband Robert how does he react to Emma's lethargic despair? He doesn't like it at all he wants a kind of compliant but a bullient pleased, grateful wife who gets on with it, who is like his mother insofar as can take control of the housework, can manage the family, but doesn't challenge him in the way that his mother sometimes challenges him. We're not going to give anything away because this is on page one. I'd like you, if you wouldn't mind, Bernie, to read that. He is silent, though he did scream, screamed hard as hell until screamed out. His stretched lips purple and then blue. His hands scrunch into fists, grip sticks and leaves so tight they cut the soft flesh. Crust forms at his nostrils. The skin around each knuckle pales. Fog dampens the bank, leaving beads of dirty moisture on his puckered mouth and eyelids. When the sun rises, it illuminates abandoned shopping trolleys, empty beer cans, silver wine bladders, the cartoon lions on his clothes. A soft breeze agitates tattered spike rush. A bleached out chip packet blows across the path. Dawn breaks brightly. The haze burns fast, but still it would be easy not to notice him. A small thing alone in the reeds by the lake. Yes, that is all in the after chapter. The book is segmented into before and after. In the before, we get chapter biographies of Pat and Shane. Tell us about how their lives are intertwined. So Shane is Pat's nephew and he has less by way of opportunity than Robert, his cousin, does. And, and Pat kind of takes him under her wing, but, he takes, but she takes him under her wing in a, in a very conditional kind of way. And Shane feels the debt that he owes her for helping him get out of trouble at school, moving him into the private school that his cousin is in, getting him into the comic development business, the real estate business that the family are involved in. And he feels this loyalty very deeply to the point that he would do anything for them, mm -hmm. um, including untoward activities, including taking the fall for things that he didn't do. He's absolutely ready to lie on a sword for Pat. And Emma has also known Shane since childhood. She knows him as a bully. And I like how you have him. Shane's posture is anchored in his groin. Sort of see that. <laughs> we have the before and after, so we need the incident. Pat has organised a big party for her birthday. All the old money of Shorehaven will be there, even the mayor. 
There's a marquee and it's been set up on the green grass lawn. Even this green grass lawn is a contrast to what's going on in the rest of Shoalhaven. Yeah, so I mean, it was really important to me to underscore the the way that this family rests on a privilege that ignores and does violence to the environment as well. And of course, the great beautiful house that the comics have built for um, Robert and Emma is around what the most prestigious address in, in Shorehaven, which is around the lake. But because of this terrible drought, the lake has become a big paddock. So Pat's rolling green lawn and rose garden and all of her um, beautiful, well-irrigated garden plants show that she's really much more interested in the presentation, the luxury, not even well-being, but actually just the kind of status of her family than she is interested in the good of her community, even though, you know, she sees herself as a philanthropist, mm. she gives to various cha charities, she continues to uphold herself as a pillar of the community. But when it comes down to it, what's really important to her are, are those personal uh, trappings of being a wealthy, privileged family. The wetlands are drying up. But it wasn't always like this, and the Cormacs have a painting to prove it. Everybody who sees this painting comments on it. Why have you made this painting such a poignant part of the story? Well, the painting in a lot of ways is a device which allows me to talk about the colonial history of Shorehaven. It is a painting before there was this man-made lake there and there were these beautiful, beautiful big McMansions around the lake, etc. The painting gives the characters a focal point to actually reflect on the fact that their order isn't the natural order. It's not the order that's always been and therefore there's no reason that it's the order that should always be into the future. The Indigenous artist died before his time just as baby Robbie did. Same spot, different history. In the after sections, we read about other women who have killed their babies. So you've done a bit of research here. Yeah, I did. I really wanted the book to engage with the way that bad, and I'll do air quotes around that, bad, violent mothers are portrayed in the in the media, but also the way that they're portrayed in literature um, and the way that we engage with that idea of the murderous mother. Also in the after section, we get a feel of years passing. Emma's sister Izzy finally succeeding as an actor in Los Angeles and closer to home, Pat teaching growing up Clem to drive. Clem did not grow up as a Pat lookalike. How are they different? They're different in every way, I suppose, other than the fact that Clem is willful and independent in ways that Pat is. But she has no truck with continuing the patriarchal order. She's not here to make sure things continue as they always have. She's got a curious mind. She's a budding artist. She's got an incredibly open, generous intellect, particularly when she thinks back on the legacies and the acts and the actions of her family and her mother. And she, crucially, is willing to forgive, which is certainly something that isn't, isn't in, in Pat's wheelhouse. Emma was once called a good woman and then she was called a very sorry woman. And this is a quote in The After. Independence shouldn't be a commendable achievement for someone her age. Still, it's new. She is slowly and carefully building herself a life she can bear to live. Pat's life is not what she imagined, is it? She's got her husband, Bob, has dementia. And Shane, what about his life? 
Well, with Pat, I think, you know, her life is what she imagined right up until it wasn't. And I think that that's the case with all of us, right? Our life is what we imagine. And then there are ruptures, which mean that we need to imagine and think differently. Shane ends up living overseas. He kind of perpetuates a sort of neo-colonialism, which shows the Cormacs actually for what they've always been, which is this kind of like land grabbing, corrupt group of, of people essentially who are out for whatever they can get whether or not he imagined that that's what his life would be I, I, don't, I don't know I think Shane is pretty happy and satisfied in a lot of ways though I think he really wishes that he could be accepted that he would be another Robert comic and Robert quote his family lay strewn in the ruins of their tragedy the book finishes with Clem's exhibition it's about repeated images of a landscape, but where violence has taken place, but may not be obvious. What did she call this exhibition? She called it Echolalia. Look, I'm a fan of repeated motifs, obviously. Uh, and I think I was listening to an ABC book show and they were like, oh, this is a bit of a cheap trick to call the book after this exhibition or call the exhibition after the book and to tie it all together. But, you know, I'm, I'm really just impressing upon the reader that these acts are repetitions and that in each repetition, we must have a kind of a keen eye for what's left out, for what might be ignored or for what might be repeated unnecessarily. Well, things are falling apart. The lake is drying up. The town is changing. And who you are in a marriage and in a broader family is under scrutiny in Echolalia by Bryony Doyle. Thank you, Bryony. <laughs> Thanks so much for having me, Jan. And now it's David's turn. Tanya Chandler takes us to the edge of sanity in her latest novel, All That I Remember about Dean Kohler. So Tanya, welcome to 3CR. Thank you so much for having me. Your central character is Sydney, who is facing some mental health issues. And I just want to tease some of those out. She's returning to work after a period of hospitalisation, but she has experienced schizophrenia. Would that be correct? Sydney lives with diverse mental health but yeah she does have schizophrenia she doesn't like to call it a mental illness because that sounds like a contagious disease that you can catch so we we see Sydney in the book in two different periods of her life we start with her in her 30s so she's a professional woman going back to work as a corporate editor and then later we go back in time to when she's a 16 year old schoolgirl dreaming of becoming a writer and escaping the parochial country town where she lives so in both eras Sydney struggles with shifting realities with visual and auditory hallucinations intruding into her experience of the everyday world so she moves from periods of insight into the nature of her experiences to delusional thinking dissociation so I wanted to highlight the, cha the challenges faced by someone experiencing this kind of mental illness and the struggle involved in living with it and the prejudices someone with a mental illness faces. One of the interesting elements was this notion of memory. Some patients find it hard to draw on memories in a way that can be used as a source of experience. Some people tell me it feels like time has stopped. And this is one of Sydney's central concerns because she's trying to remember Dean Kohler from her youth, but 
is her perception of that reality real? There's an interesting question that goes throughout the book. So the thing about memory is something that her psychiatrist told her. I don't know that Sydney always listens to her psychiatrist. Um, but, if, but yeah, memory is so interesting. It's what we remember, what we don't. Where short-term memory becomes long-term memory, and why and and. You know, even in normal people, it's hard to remember, let alone someone who's lived with a disorder like Sydney's and the, the illness itself, as well as treatments, have distorted her memories over time. So, you know, some of her memories are repressed, some she just doesn't want to face, and some are definitely gone or distorted. One of the interesting things we find is that Sydney discovers a diary she wrote as an adolescent. And this gives us greater insight into her character because there are a range of people that could well have contributed to her condition. So she has an unstable mother. Yes, her mother, Faye, is is doing her best. Single mother, hasn't had a great life, works at the department store in town, is really unhappy. She's one of these people... But she loves her animals. She loves her animals more than, than people. Sydney will never say anything about her mother. And, you know, also teachers were there to help her. There was a psychologist who was probably not a great psychologist and Sydney was easily able to trick him. So friends, but I don't think Sydney understood what was happening to her either. So they were talking about the onset of her illness when she was a teenager. So the people that should have been there to help her weren't really there. Um, Well, some of them actually betrayed her. So her teacher could well have provided support and Mm. make uh, suggestions about certain books, but ultimately Mm. fails in his duty toward her. Yes, I think, well, his motives were the opposite of trying to help her. So he was only thinking of himself. Adolescence itself is a contributing factor to one's mental health. And this is what I found fascinating because you see the adolescent girls and boys almost fabricating their own reality. He loves me, no, he's with you, all of this (laughs) sort of positioning, but it's not actually based in fact. No, it's all, <laughs> it's um, stories that we tell ourselves. And uh, I was just thinking that there was a teacher that tried to help Sydney. That was uh, the principal of the school. So she was the one who suggested Sydney go to see the psychologist. But Sydney had just read the bell jar and she didn't want what happened to Esther to happen to her. So she tricked the psychologist into thinking that she was, that she was fine. Which suggests that even those with mental health issues are, in fact, exceptionally intelligent. I think so, yeah. Yeah, I think um, creativity and intelligence are often the other side of of mental health issues. Um, I'm not sure if that's been proven or or not, but I would hazard a guess that in pretty much most cases that's the truth. There are a lot of people in many ways shaping Sydney's reality, In adolescence, you have uh, the name calling and the positioning in that regard. But even in uh, maturity, her husband, Christos, wants her to have a baby. So there's this sort of 
imposition of other forces on the individual that influence one's mental health? Yeah, so Christos, Sydney's husband, um, look, she believes that he will take care of her if anything goes wrong. If she gets sick again, he's the one who will know what to do. So she thinks of him as her carer as well as her husband, but he is protective and solicitous. Um, really don't think Sydney truly loves him. And, you know, he's not on the same intellectual page as, as her, but they've been together a long time. And she puts up with him as I guess in his mind, he probably puts up with her. So he, Christos decides that they should have a baby. Well, Sydney isn't ready to have a baby for, for many reasons. She's, you know, she's afraid of lots of things such as possibly passing on her illness, even worse, parenting like her mother. Yeah, so, so this creates quite a bit of conflict between those two characters. But one area where Sydney does show her resilience is when she helps her neighbour, Aubrey, a young girl, because she understands what Aubrey's going through. Yeah, so Aubrey is um, Sydney's 14-year-old next-door neighbour. And Aubrey's a very grounding influence on Sydney. She brings out the nurturing side of Sydney that I don't think she ever knew she had herself. Aubrey has dyslexia and Sydney helps her with her reading. So Sydney sees herself a lot in Aubrey. You know, they're both only children. Aubrey's very self-conscious, lacking in confidence, and they, you know, both have single mothers. Um, and then later, Sydney suspects that Aubrey is being abused by her mother. When Sydney makes up her mind to leave Christos, Aubrey's the reason that she ends up coming back home. Now, by the end of the novel, and without giving anything away, various realities collide at the end of the novel. We do actually find out what happened to Dean Kohler. Mm. There's an unravelling of truths. And even Sydney didn't know Dean Kohler truly she was tossing up between her recollections her memory which wasn't necessarily reliable and discovering the reality which was fascinating yeah so sydney always suspected that let's just say a bad thing that happened was something that dean did but then she finds out otherwise so so it is sydney's reality she discovers the truth you know that will set her free part of the diary christos's reality is proven to be different to sydney's reality and we and we end up finding the truth in the end yeah but even sydney's perception that she was in love with dean mm. Kohler in her adolescence yep. really comes out as that she didn't really know him all that well at all. That's right. So the title is ironic. And when I was writing the book, I had this word in my head, substantial. So, and she always described Dean as, you know, this, that, whatever, but substantial to her. And as I was writing, I was thinking about everything at the start that she believes in is insubstantial. And in the end, she realises that Dean really was insubstantial in her life and she finds out what really matters what is substantial so yeah this word was just in my mind as, as I was writing it popped in it was kind of the key to understanding her thoughts but it also speaks that. to the power within an individual to create a reality and adolescents are very good at doing that especially 
at that cusp when they're thinking about relationships and what it means, they can live a reality in their own mind, which isn't actually true. This is the reason that I gave Sydney a diary and why Dean Colan never actually appears in a scene. He's only ever in Sydney's diary or in her memories. So we only ever know about him from Sydney's perspective. We never get to see him in real life, in, in action or his dialogue. It's all reported from Sydney. So that was really important to me to, to make it that way. So we would only ever have Sydney's perspective and the, the reader would know exactly what was going on, but we would never see Dean's side of the story. Even Dean's parents are living a different reality because they don't know truly what happened to Dean Kohler. So they're living no. another reality based on what they think happened. That was a hard thing for Sydney. She really wanted to tell them the truth of what happened to him, but she could understand why that could never happen. And there's a gesture from Dean Kohler's mother at the end of the story that frees Sydney up a little bit from, from the guilt of what happened with Dean and I'm not sure how else to talk about that without giving too much away. Well we're going to allow allow the listener and the reader to find out for themselves Mm. what happened Mm. but just in conclusion you've got some lovely images that come out you have the boxes the Pack King storage boxes compartmentalizing (laughs) and storing away memories in some way and the other one is the bonsai tree. Now, that was deliberate, was it, the bonsai tree? And what happens to the bonsai tree? Uh, yes. Um, the bonsai tree was deliberate. The, the packing box less so. <laughs> I didn't really think about, about those. Um, she bent the tree left, right, left. They are fragile but resilient. So hmm. it's a metaphor for what uh, a lot of people are going through. Yeah, so it is a metaphor for for Sydney, I guess, her um, state of mind that, you know, she looks pretty fragile and unstable, but really she's a really strong, resilient character. And the bonsai was really important. It's throughout the the whole story and and the story's a lot about perspective. So the way that we view bonsai from the front is very different to the way that it looks at the back. You know, the front is all for show and the back is a part. That, that we never see. Um, so things hidden, things on the surface, so the way that um, we shape things. So the bonsai is a lot like that. Um, and it was bought by Sydney's mother a long time ago. And she's Sydney at one stage thinks that she needs to keep the bonsai alive. So she will keep Dean Kohler alive. And in a way, that's what she does. Well, if the reader wants to find out more, <laughs> about what actually happened to Dean Kohler and how, in fact, Sydney goes about establishing the truth. I will need to read all that I remember about (laughs) Dean Kohler. The author is Tanya Chandler and it's a scribe publication. So, Tanya, thank you very much for speaking with me today. Thank you so much for having me. You've just been listening to Published or Not on 3CR. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.